In the beginning, the Bible opens with words that echo through all the great stories of our childhoods. Like the beginning of a fairy tale, they set the scene for a tale of epic adventure and drama, of sorrow and loss, of redemption and reconciliation, of grace and justice. A tale of a great prince who comes to rescue his bride from the clutches of a fierce dragon. But unlike the stories we heard as children, this one is true. It's a story that actually happened and continues to unfold. A story that doesn't begin once upon a time, but in the beginning. A story that only God can tell because however else you describe it, it's a story of hope. And it's a story that can only begin with in the beginning because the only one who knows the beginning is the one who was there before the beginning. The one who made everything. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. How did this God make the world? Did he take pre-existing material and reshape it? Did he set about a chain of events that led to the gradual development of the world as we know it? God did something even more miraculous, something that seems too simple to be true, but is. He spoke. Let there be. And with a word, whatever he called into existence was. Everything, from the smallest subatomic particles that make up your body, to the earth under your feet and the air you're breathing, to the sun and the stars that give us light. God created all of it. Over six days, creating a rhythm of work and worship, he spoke all things into being, and as each appeared, he declared it good. And in the end, everything was good. All of it was glorious. The world he made radiated his presence because it was his and he delighted in it because it was exactly the way he wanted it, including the pinnacle of his creation, people, human beings. Let us make man in our image according to our likeness, God said, and he did. A man formed from the dust of the earth by God's hand, a woman formed from the side of the man to be his partner in the shared calling to be fruitful and multiply and steward the world God had made, to create, to communicate, and form communities, to harness the earth's resources to aid in the flourishing of their descendants, to bear his image throughout creation, to be his representatives, to reflect his goodness and graciousness to the ends of the earth. And God called these people he had made not just good, but very good. They were glorious. They radiated his presence. They were his. And he delighted in them and they delighted in him because they were exactly the way he wanted. Together they were a beautiful picture of something even more beautiful, God's community. Before the beginning, before God created the heavens and the earth, before he created human beings in his image, before anything was created, God simply was. Everything that makes God, God was already present. His nature, his power, his plans, his character, all of it. And in the beginning, when God already was, he already had community, joyous, unbroken fellowship between three persons who are all fully and equally God. 
Not three separate gods, not three thirds that make up a whole. One God who is three persons. The Father, the maker of the heavens and the earth. The Spirit who hovered over the waters of the earth during their creation. The Word through whom all things were made and all things continue to exist and in whom God delights. God's perfect community, a community that didn't need us, but one our Creator invites us to experience as His beings made in His image, according to His likeness. One He invites us to experience through the Word, who came into this world and dwelt among us, who is more than an image bearer, but is the image of God, the exact expression of His nature, who reflects God's glory into all creation by giving up his life for those he dearly loves. The Word, the prince in the story God is telling, who came to rescue his bride from the clutches of a fierce dragon. The story that begins in the beginning. great summary of what we're going to be doing. We are looking at Christ in the Old Testament. And many sometimes are surprised to find Jesus in Genesis. Partially because we just celebrated Christmas. And during the Christmas season, we kind of have this focus of Jesus coming. And some people think that Jesus came into existence at Christmas time. But rather, Christmas time is when Jesus, when we celebrate His birth, His incarnation. And we have seen here, even in this video and last week, that Jesus existed in the beginning. Last week we saw that Christ was the Creator. Today we will be seeing that God promised one who would come to rescue His people. And that Christ is the Rescuer. The Rescuer would come from Eve's family and He would rescue people from their sins and bring them back to God. So the major theme that should always be preached when a preacher gets up to preach should be Jesus. Something we were taught often in seminary. In fact, one of my professors, someone rose their hand and said, if I'm preaching in Isaiah, should I talk about Jesus? And he kind of went, well, of course. When you preach, always preach about Jesus. And the witness of Scripture, as Jesus says, is about me. It's about Jesus. And that is why this is written so we would come to know Him. Come to worship Him and obey Him. Last week we learned that Christ was the agent of creation. Today we will see that He is also the agent of of redemption, what you and I truly need. So let's pray again before we look into Scripture. Father God, I thank You so much that we have this Word of God before us. I thank You that is trustworthy and true. I thank You that the words that were written were from You. 
And they're reliable as we have studied in the last couple weeks. And Lord, I thank You that this story, as we will see today, was set in motion in the first couple chapters. God, that You would rescue us from our sins. And Lord, I pray that today, even though we're going through a lot of data, and I feel a little overwhelmed, we're covering two and a half major Christian doctrines today. Overall, I pray that when we leave, we would just say, thank You, God, that You rescued someone like me. So Spirit, do Your work in our hearts. Do the surgery if needed. Because we're going to look at sin. But in the same stroke, we'll look at the Rescuer. Lord, we thank You for today. And this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So take your Bibles and turn to Genesis chapter 1. In the beginning. In the drama of redemption, if you missed last week, I encourage you to go back online and take a look at some of the notes. In the drama of redemption, we have, if you could call it, Act 1. Act 1, we have the act of God in creation and relationship. The beginning of the Bible contains the story of creation. And again, in a couple weeks, we're going to have at 1 o'clock, we're going to talk about creation and some some of the evidence and proofs that would contradict evolution. So I encourage you to come. We'll get more information to you about that. This universal structure and framework that it's penned out in the first couple chapters is the foundation that the first audience needed to know and that we need to know. That God is powerful and He's personal. He's powerful and personal. When Genesis was written, the children of Israel were in bondage to those in Egypt for hundreds of years and they were rescued by a deliverer. I can't wait to get to Exodus. They were rescued and then Moses begins to think about what they need to know and through God's great way of writing Scripture, inspired, Moses begins to write Genesis. Because the people at this time, even though they were enslaved by Egyptians, they begin to adapt to the mindset of how the Egyptians taught and what they thought about gods, plural, and life. They begin to adopt the ideas of paganism and the traditions of their masters. Many were influenced by false concepts about God, the world, and human nature. Those three things. Genesis comes and corrects those thoughts even for us today. Because we need a right understanding of who God is. We need a right understanding of the world and how it came to be and what's the function of the world and human nature. Genesis is about teaching Israel about God's purpose in history and in their own life. God is the Creator of all things and rules over all things. And He will move heaven and earth to bring about His perfect plan. God is the Creator. But God is also foundationally relational. In Genesis, it's not just the origin of the universe and plans, 
It's also his special relationship with mankind. He's relational. We will encounter real paganism. Wrong ideas about God. Wrong ideas about the world. And wrong ideas about human nature today. And we also must know the God of the Bible. That He is powerful and personally involved in our lives today. I almost want to stop and sing Amazing Grace again, right? God is powerful. And no other gods can rival Him. He created out of nothing. And we have great value and dignity because we were created in His image. Something the world has tried to erode so much. That's Act 1. In the drama of redemption, we have Act 2, if you could call it. The fall of Adam. Sin. And a horrible mess. So let's go to Genesis chapter 3. Again, we're not doing a complete overview of all of the Old Testament. That would take 30 years in my style. We're going to be jumping through, and even today I feel overwhelmed. I start out with 11 pages of notes. Every Sunday I have to boil it down to only three. Genesis chapter 3. We're going to look at kind of four teachings today. We're going to look at Satan, sin, rebellion, and a rescue plan. So we're going to look at today. And in this dark episode of human history, Genesis chapter 3, Exodus 32 and 33 are probably the darkest chapters in the Old Testament. In this dark episode, we encounter a serpent, a woman and man, and God. I love how in the darkest chapters, God is always there. In your darkest chapter, know this. God is always there. Genesis chapter 3. Yet from this scene shines, I wrote this down, forth the greatest beacon of hope that the lost world has ever known. I love rescue plans. I love reading military theory and stories of World War II rescue plans. This today begins the greatest rescue plan ever known. So, Genesis chapter 3, starting with verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. Now if you read through this section, as we're going to do here, we will notice that Satan is never mentioned. Just a serpent is mentioned. He's crafty. But here, as we look at the whole counsel of God, we know that Satan is here. And as Wayne Gruden mentions in his theology, somewhere between the events of Genesis chapter 1, verse 31, and Genesis 3, 1, there must have been a rebellion in the angelic world, which other parts of Scripture speak about both old and new, 
where many angels turned against God and became evil. Listen to these two verses out of the New Testament. 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 4. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but He sent them to hell, punished them in chains of darkness to be held for judgment. So there's this time after creation, God has this created world, Genesis chapter 1, between 3, there's this time where part of the angelic realm, a third, rebelled. Or Jude 6, and the angels who did not keep their position of authority, but abandoned their proper dwelling, these he have he has kept in darkness, bound with everlasting chains for judgment on the great day. Satan, which means adversary, is the head of these angelic beings that rebelled against God. He has many names in Scripture. Beelzebub, ruler of this world. The evil one. Or Revelation 12.9. The great dragon was hurled down. That ancient serpent, Revelation 12.9 says, called the devil or Satan who leads the world astray. Satan. Satan is the originator of sin. We see this in the passage 1 John 3.8. The devil has been sinning since the beginning. We have an enemy. We spent time talking about that when we were in Ephesians chapter 6. I like how the Application Bible says this in their notes. If you have a study Bible, I encourage you to get one. If you don't have one, get one and, and use the notes. Some of them are great. Here's what the application, Life Application Bible says, and I've tweaked it a bit to kind of fit what we're talking about here. Satan's plan is to have us doubt God and His Word. To be discouraged by our problems and not looking at God. Making a diversion of what God wants to be seemingly attractive things instead what God wants. We, we see sin to be appealing. Defeat and bringing about division in relationships. Satan is our enemy. And he is about destroying what God has made good. But let me give you a spoiler alert. If you don't like spoiler alerts, take your fingers and don't do this. Go like this. Here's the spoiler alert. Satan is no match for Christ. Amen? Satan the destroyer will soon be destroyed, right? Spoiler alert if you didn't know. Satan. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals. The Lord God had made. Point number two, sin enters the world. The story God of God continues from good and beautiful to the tragic effects of man's sin. God created the world without sin. And in creation, there was no defect. Some people think, well, He created it and there were some problems. Kind of like our vehicles last week. That's why I still got oil on my hands. Working on vehicles. There was some defects. It was problematic. That's not true. 
It was exceedingly good. It was wonderful. And his first judgment on creation was, it is good. God created the world. It was good. Sin and evil did not come from God. He is not the author of sin. He hates sin. 1 John chapter 1, verse 5. And man was created innocent, yet with the capacity to choose his own desire and will and make choices. Let's go back to Genesis chapter 3. He said to the woman, Did God really say, You must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, We may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say, You must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden. And you must not touch it, or you will die. You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman. For God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food, and pleasing to the eye, and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and ate it. Satan, through the serpent, approached Eve with the goal of deception and doubt. Does the same thing today with us. We have His Word. And the enemy is all about deceiving us and having us doubt God. Satan comes in such a manner and tries to get her mind to think differently about what God has spoken. About His goodness and His provision. And Satan's plan of attack was to make Eve believe that God was holding something back that she could get that was good by not allowing them to eat of the tree of knowledge. Both Adam and Eve disobeyed God. Sometimes people say, well, Eve did it first. Adam was right there. They both did it. After they ate of the tree, their eyes were opened. And they became fully aware of good and evil. Not in the way Satan planned it, but they understood their sinfulness. And they became aware of their sin. We're in Genesis, but truly let's turn to Romans. Everyone take your Bibles and go to Romans chapter 5. Someone should make a tally mark how many times through these next two years that we go to Romans. Romans chapter 5. These last couple months as I study Scripture, it's been three months now, I've been realizing I need to study Romans 5 more. Something about Romans 5 that has so... It's like this huge buffet. I like buffets. Romans 5 has so much in it. Romans chapter 5, verse 12. Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man, and death through sin, and in this way death came 
to all people because all have sinned. The death that Adam brought into the world by his sin did not just affect him alone. It wasn't just Adam and Eve. It now has affected all of humanity. Because all men have sinned. This is such an important verse. Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man, and death through sin, and in this way death came to all people, because all have sinned. Death is the consequence of sin. And because we have sinned, the answer is death because of our actions. This is a great verse to talk about when we look at Genesis 3. They chose to believe the tempter instead of their maker. They believed the things that he said. And the result was devastating. Sin enters into the world. Their pride and disbelief triggered a rebellion affecting their relationship with God, with creation, and with whole cultures and governments and systems even seen today. God's the Creator. He made things good. And then sin entered the world. The rebellion started. Rebellion. Sin entered into the world because of human choice. Because they chose to rebel against God. People were created to be in everlasting fellowship with God. To be with Him. To live forever. We were not created to die. Yet death is a result of sin. That's why one of the reasons when someone dies, it's so devastating. We weren't meant to die. We were meant to be in this everlasting relationship with God. There's real grief when someone dies. We don't grieve like the world grieves because we have hope because of the rescuer. Sin is any failure to conform to the moral law of God. Not just in act alone, but in attitude or nature. Not only actions, but desires and thoughts we see in Scripture. In the Bible, sin is either to trespass or transgress or to miss the mark. We see in Scripture often that it means to miss the mark. God has a certain standard and we miss the mark. Or we have this transgression of sins. We're not supposed to go to certain places. It's almost like trespassing into an area we shouldn't be. Either we miss the mark or we go across the line. We aren't victims in this. We're the culprits. We have this mindset today that people say, well, sin isn't that bad. And I know a church in lacrosse that says what we're going to do is we're going to get so close to sin so that people will come to church without getting into sin and then they'll accept us what are you crazy sin is disastrous we're not victims we're culprits we're not the prey of sin we're the predators seeking out sin we are sinners born into this corrupt state. We're born into sin. Human depravity is one of the easiest Christian doctrines 
to prove, if you could say, just look at the world around us. Look at 9-11, human depravity. Look at some of the horrific things that happen in this world. It's disgusting. The real human predicament is that we have rebelled against God. We have chosen to live against His holy standard. And this corrupted our entire nature. We have now a bent towards sin. It contaminates everything. Some of my cars broke down last week and then this cold came and made it worse. And I don't mind working on cars that I can fix, but when it gets beyond my skill level, it just gets frustrating when it's very cold. I understand farmers how you have to deal with this now. I'm like, wow, I prayed for farmers going, it's got to be hard. And one thing I don't like, especially before Sundays, is when I'm working on a car and oil, I don't like getting my hands dirty. That sounds weird, but I'm a preacher that likes clean hands when I'm holding the Word of God and preaching. I don't like dirty hands. It's just one of my weird quirks I have. And I tried my best to keep oil off my hands. It just didn't work. It got polluted no matter what. Sin is even worse. We are born sinful. Now some of you that are parents, the birth of your child, how cute they are, how they smell. You're just like, oh, babies are wonderful. But not all their smells are wonderful, right? They're not always as cute as you think. As beautiful as babies are, I encourage you to get a baby bottle to help support the Pregnancy Help Center if you haven't got one. As wonderful and beautiful as babies are, they are born sinful. If you don't believe it, raise that child and you'll see it, right? We are born corrupted. Listen to this. Sin is more than what the sinner does. It's part of their nature. It's more than what they do. It is something that has taken hold of their hearts. It's more than what they do. It's taken hold of what their hearts. It's taken hold of their hearts. Three thoughts about sin. I thought of how it pollutes us. It corrupts God's gift from their intended purpose. It corrupts God's gifts as intended for their purpose. For instance, you may have a lady who is very bright and smart. She is smarter than I could ever be, let's say. Well, there's many people smarter than I am. And she gets a great education. She has a great disposition to understand things and think. And she gets great grades. The valedictorian, I never got one of those things when I was in school at all. Brilliant lady. First class education. All paid for because she was so smart. Yet if she doesn't use that gift for God's glory or for His kingdom. Instead, she uses for greed or social status, building her own empire. She missed out. Another thing that happens with sin, it destroys our own integrity in how we should live. Racism, secular thought, sexism. It's all infected us and the church. It's dangerous. Much has been spoiled and polluted by sin. And the last one I thought, it pollutes relationships with God and others. 
We see here in Genesis, we're going to cover all the details, but it destroyed the relationship between God and between their relationship. Their relationship and the destruction of it starts with chapter 3, verse 16 and following. Marriages should have security and fulfillment. But now they're filled with strife and antagonism. That's the horizontal, but even the vertical has been destroyed. Their rebellion severed their relationship with God. Sin results in death, both physically and spiritually with God. Sin is destructive. Again, spoiler alert, sin never destroyed God's plan. Amen? Sin did not disrupt His perfect plan. Which leads us to Act 3. The rescue plan. Genesis 3.15. Let's go back to Genesis chapter 3. Even though there was this great creation, created good, man sinned. They failed. The good news is that God has addressed the issue of human sin and corruption outside of the system. Even though there's system and man was there, the Satan spoke and worked through the serpent and there was corruption in the system, God had a plan outside of the system. And His gracious love and initiative, He sends one into the world, into the system, to rescue us. After Satan leads Adam and Eve into sin, humanity is trapped in this cosmic plight of destruction. This huge hostage crisis. But God responds by launching this full-scale rescue plan. And it's found in this here. A glimpse of a strategy is found in this amazing verse, Genesis 3.15. His plan was to restore... Grab a Kleenex here. My nose is running like it's been doing all week. His plan was to destroy what the enemy has done. Let's read Genesis 3.15. In fact, we've got the most famous verse, John 3.16. In many ways, this could be the second most famous verse in Scripture. Genesis 3.15 And I will put enmity between you and the woman. He's talking to the serpent. And between your offspring and her offspring. And this offspring, spoken about here, he will crush your head and you will strike his heel. So I wrote this down. Eve's offspring will rescue and redeem humanity from the curse of Satan's tyranny. Here we have the first announcement, the first good news, the first account of the Gospel message found even in Genesis 3. Many people don't realize that Jesus is in all of Scripture. He's in Genesis 3. This future descendant of Eve 
will come to save His people. I like how Galatians 4, 4 says, but when the right time has fully came, God sent His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, and we will see next week that this descendant in Galatians 3.16 is Jesus Christ. Here this verse speaks of even though there's bondage, even though Satan has come, even though there's sin, guess what? God is sending one who will rescue them. Redemption and reconciliation are coming from their rescuer, from Eve's offspring. The curse came because of the sin of Adam and Eve. Yet God promised that someday a descendant would come and crush the enemy. Genesis 3.15 is a beautiful verse of hope. Crushing the head. Let me take a look at the end of this here, of verse 15. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. What is this speaking about here? Crushing the head of the serpent and striking on the heel will have equally fatal results. Even though it doesn't seem like it, but take a look at this. Satan would strike or bruise Jesus' heel. Is one of the translations, a popular one, says bruise. He will bruise your heel. Satan will come and strike the heel of Jesus. It's a painful wound, no doubt, but not fatal. Satan would strike Jesus on the cross, but that was not a fatal blow. He thought the cross was it. It was done. Even though he died, it wasn't a fatal blow because Jesus would rise again. Amen? It's interesting in the Passion of Christ, Mel Gibson's depiction of the brutality and the horrific things Jesus that he endured leading up to the cross. If you've seen the movie, there's this scene, as soon as Jesus dies, then there's this glimpse of a teardrop from heaven, and then Satan's like, ah, screaming. It was the resurrection that made him scream. Satan would strike, but it wouldn't be fatal. He would rise and live again. The sufferings of death, I mean, the sufferings of Christ, they are horrific and painful. Yes, the Messiah's suffering in a year and a half, we're going to get to in Isaiah 53. They're real, but death could not hold him. He rose again, amen? He is risen. He's risen indeed. Jesus would strike crush Satan's head. Clearly speaking of a fatal wound. The wounds Jesus received, suffering, painful, but not fatal. But what Satan receives, it's fatal. Satan would strike Jesus on the cross, but that was not a fatal blow. He'd rise again. Here, Jesus strikes the enemy. And this is talking about the cross and empty tomb, which Jesus' ultimate victory over sin and Satan happens. 1 Corinthians 15, we're going to read it at the end here, speaks of the glorious beauty the results of the resurrection. Satan gets crushed. The cross event secures the final destruction and victory over Satan. Amen? He is mighty to save. Amazing grace. We're just saying those things. That's a reality because what Jesus has done, spoken of, 
in Genesis 3.15. Christ here is the promise. The rescuer. The redeemer in the future that will one day crush the head of the serpent and it foreshadows Satan's defeat at the cross event, the death and resurrection, and will be finalized Revelation 19 and 20. Genesis 3 is beautiful. We celebrate Jesus because He has defeated the enemy. I mentioned this before. Remember when I was in high school? I wrote on the bottom of my shoe the, shoe the word devil. I just walked around. Yeah! I'm walking on the enemy because Satan has been crushed. There was, a, there was this Christian rock band back in the day in the 80s. They said, dancing on the head of the serpent. I'm like, yes! Jesus has won! But why do we walk around like this? Yeah, God's good. Yeah, victory in Jesus. Amazing grace. Sound better if it's big pipes. What? Part of it's because of this. Have you forgotten the sinful mess you were in? Have you forgotten the results of sin, which is death? He has rescued and redeemed us. Even found in Genesis 3.15. We had death through Adam. But now we have life through Christ. He is the defeat of the serpent and death itself. Even though death came through Adam, Christ has brought us life, eternal life, for those who would turn and trust in Him. So let's go back to Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5. I should say this every Sunday. So if I'd say the opposite of this, this may not sound great, but this is so important. If I ever say, oh, this is not important, then I shouldn't be preaching, right? But this is so important, people. Even in Genesis 3, we see the beauty of celebrating Jesus Christ in the Old Testament. Romans chapter 5. Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man, verse 12, and death through sin. And in this way, death came to all people because all have sinned. To be sure, sin was in the world before the law was given. And we'll see that getting to Exodus. But sin is not charged against anyone's account where there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from the time of Adam to the time of Moses, even over those who did not sin by breaking the commands, as Adam did, who is the pattern of the one to come. But the gift is not like the trespass. For if the many die by the trespass of the one man, how much more did God's grace and gift that came by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ? It used to be that Adam was my representative original sin he's the one but now in christ christ is my representative amen we have life in christ 
overflowing to the many. Verse 16. Nor can the gift of God be compared with the result of one man's sin. The judgment followed one sin and brought condemnation. But the gift followed many trespasses and brought justification. For if by the trespass of the one man, death reigned through that one man, how much more will those who receive God's abundant provision of grace and the gift of righteousness reign in the life through the one man, Jesus Christ. So let me end with this. Your sin condemns you. Know that. And justification being seen right before God, declared right before God, can only be done by faith alone. And it's necessary to redeem the problem of your rebellion. And you need representation. We're all represented by Adam, but we need Christ to be our representative. Today, turn to the remedy found in Jesus Christ, the Rescuer. Let's pray. Father God, we come before You right now. And we want to thank You that even though we have been sinners from the beginning, even though our parents might have said, it's the cutest baby ever, we were born in sin. God, I thank You. That even when the first sin happened, all this was going on, the deceiver came, Adam and Eve, they turned against what You planned. You had a greater plan even before that. And I thank You, Jesus, that You have saved us. So Lord, if there's anyone in this room that needs to turn to You, I pray that they would turn to You and say, I need You, Jesus. I need to be represented not by Adam, but by You. Lord, You are mighty to save. You've rescued us. And we thank You. And this we pray and praise You.